We'll be talking all about fundraising, what to do during challenging economic times during online fundraising day on October 15th. Join us for engaging conversations on topics ranging from donor engagement to best practices for online fundraising to tracking the effectiveness of your fundraising efforts. Be inspired with new ideas for reaching your fundraising goals. Visit communitycatspodcast.com to learn more. You've tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. And today we're speaking with Valerie Benka and John Boone. Valerie has worked for ACC and D for nine years. Prior to this, she coordinated a feline adoption program in Virginia while working in the DC nonprofit world. As a student in the Animals and Public Policy Program at Tufts University's Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine, Valerie conducted research on reduced costs, feline spay neuter, including the factors that motivate people to have their pets sterilized and both the life histories and long-term outcomes of feline clients. John is a wildlife biologist whose work focuses on applied conservation issues. Working at the Great Basin Bird Observatory since 2004, John has been involved in major bird inventory and conservation planning efforts and has conducted many conservation planning research and monitoring projects around the region. His formal involvement in the animal welfare world began in 2000 when he began volunteering at the SPCA of Northern Nevada. John also serves as a consultant to the Humane Society International and the HSUS, helping to develop and implement monitoring programs for street dogs and feral cats around the world. Valerie and John, I'd like to welcome you to the show. And first and foremost, Valerie, you're going to have to tell me, how did you get to be passionate about cats? Thanks for having us. So, you know, I have interest areas in in a few things beyond animal welfare and conservation issues and public health and human behavior. And those are all things I've looked at academically and professionally and community cat certainly touches upon all of those areas. And so just through all of your your education, I'm somewhat familiar with the Tufts program, and it's sort of for folks that are interested in thinking outside of the box, I think, with regards to animals and how we treat animals in our society. And there have been some great projects that have come out of that experience. So how was it at, at Tufts? How was that program? It was, it was fantastic. It was a really, a really great program. And as you mentioned in the introduction, um, my final project was interviewing clients of um, a reduced cost spay neuter clinic focused on cats and trying to understand more about their stories and the stories of the animals that came to the clinic with the ultimate goal of potentially putting in place policy solutions or, you know, outreach approaches that could better serve people and animals. And John, you've been involved with the Community Cats podcast a few times before. And how did you become passionate about cats through all the research that you've been doing? Uh, Well, it really had two different genesis and then they came together. So, you know, I was always interested in in animals and pets and, and that sort of thing growing up like most of us were. And I got involved in my local SPCA 20 some years ago now. 
And for a long time, that was just on one track. And then my, my conservation biology training and uh, professional life was on sort of a different track. And then somewhere in the period about 10 to 12 years ago, they started sort of coming together because in conservation biology and, and population biology, of course, we spend a lot of time thinking about how you count or measure animal populations. And there's really uh, lots of applications and needs for that in the animal welfare world as well. So that led to these various projects that you mentioned in the introduction. And with regard to cats specifically, there's really no issue where there is both more conflict between these two worlds, between the animal welfare world of, of outdoor cats and conservation biology, coupled with more potential for them to actually work constructively together. So it's just from that perspective, it's sort of a, a challenging and fascinating intersection, I suppose. John, I want to ask you a follow-up question with regards to that. For our listeners that might not necessarily be aware of the cat-bird conflict, could you just sort of summarize what is the concerns about that? There is concern in the conservation world that uh, free-roaming outdoor cats through predation primarily, have an impact on birds and other sorts of wildlife that is problematic. And um, that has been a longstanding concern. It's bolstered by various kinds of work that estimate the amount of these predation events that occur. So that's the nature of the concern. Um, on the other side, there is the feeling, I believe I'm characterizing this fairly in the feral cat world, that sometimes cats are made scapegoats for a larger set of conservation issues. So traditionally, these two communities of, 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 of advocates have been suspicious of each other and sometimes working, you know, working from contrary positions and in opposition to one another. We at ACCND and through, through other projects believe that there's a lot of potential though for collaboration because we do in those two worlds share some goals. We can recognize that there might be suspicion or assumptions or disagreements about how well TNR works to manage populations, but by working together, those two worlds can certainly make it work better. So Valerie, I'm just, um, we've thrown out the term ACC and D. Um, can you share with me what that means and what is the focus of that organization? Sure. Um, ACCND is the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs. And um, we are a, a small organization with a, a really extraordinary group of um, board members and scientific advisors and an international advisory board as well. So even though we're based in the US, we do have an international scope. Our mission is to advance um, non-surgical sterilants and contraceptives for cats and dogs and to promote their global accessibility. And that is, you know, inspired by the fact that, you know, even with the extraordinary group of, of veterinarians and, and veterinary technicians um, and volunteers, there's no way to surgically spay and neuter every animal in the world who needs to be spayed and neutered to manage populations humanely. And so we are working to address that by offering more, you know, we, we oftentimes we're uh, refer to tools in the toolbox, basically offer more tools for people to use. And Valerie, can you expand upon this research effort that ACCND embarked on with a, with a variety of different folks? And then maybe John, you can touch upon the details of the research. 
Yeah, I think um, several years ago, we were trying to figure out how a potential multi-year contraceptive could impact populations of animals and particularly free-roaming populations and particularly free-roaming community cats. And, you know, right now we have sort of this, you know, the animal is not sterilized or the animal is sterilized. And there are two options. And, you know, what would happen if you had a three-year contraceptive option or a two-year contraceptive option? And um, at at that time, there was also um, a technology, an immunocontraceptive vaccine um, called Gonicon that was showing promise for cats that we were interested in that that lasted, um, give or take three years on average. And so we thought, you know, there's the best way to understand, to understand what the impact might be is to model populations because we obviously didn't have the real world data for contraceptives. So that, that was part of the, um, part of the motivation for the modeling work that we did. But the other part was sort of a, a broader picture of there's just so little data out there, real world, long-term data that have been collected on what impact different methods of population control, both lethal and non-lethal, humane and non-humane have on um, free-roaming cat populations. And you know, obviously the, the ideal scenario would be to conduct a long-term <laughs> long-term study, but short of that, we, we pulled together all the data that exists and, and put it into a model to better understand how we can, you know, best humanely manage populations. And John, so, so what did you discover in this process? Well, we explored a number of different scenarios, different ways of, of potentially managing outdoor cat populations that differed in terms of the the actual method used and in terms of how intensely that method was was applied. And I would say that of all of our findings, the one that bubbled up the most strongly and the one that has the most potential for, for improving guidance had to do with intensity. And what we mean by that is that you can think of intensity as how much sterilization effort you're applying in a given place and at the given time. At one end of the, of the gradient of possibilities is doing a little bit over your whole area and repeating that little bit year after year after year. Now, if you do that, you, you certainly help a given number of cats each time you do that to live better lives, to, to be sort of free of the, the biological burden of, of breeding and trying to raise young and that sort of thing. But it's quite possible that you don't ever get enough animals, enough cats sterilized at one time to turn off that reproductive cap in ways that make a big difference in terms of of the population size. So what we recommend as a result of this work is that if, if population control, if reducing the number of cats in a given place is a, is a big part of your goal set, then finding ways to concentrate whatever effort you have available in space and in time pays a lot of dividends. So if you can do 500 surgeries over the course of a three-year project, the best way to do that in terms of reducing overall number of cats might be to do three-fourths of those surgeries in the first year to try to get a critical 
proportion of those cats sterilized, and then you reap the benefits of that reproduced output of kittens for all the subsequent years, as opposed to meeting out those 500 sterilizations evenly year by year by year. The same sort of thinking applies to space as well. If you've got a given amount of effort, it's generally going to be more effective to concentrate that in a space that's small enough so that it succeeds in getting the majority of those cats sterilized and then moving out from there rather than spreading it out over a much bigger area where its population impact is diluted. So that's really the most important message of that work is that it's it cemented that notion that that targeting, which is another word that's been used in the past for this approach, is critically important. It also reinforced um, some things that I think many people in this listening audience have have concluded or sensed based on their own um, based on their own experience, their own anecdotal observations, which are that um, you know immigration or abandonment of cats is a major challenge in some areas, and it doesn't take that much abandonment or immigration into an area where you're working very hard to undo a lot of your work. And that's because one cat can produce enough kittens to replace a whole bunch of other cats that aren't reproducing, right? So I, I think that's that there's all sorts of different other results that are that are interesting and relevant. But really, if you boil down the part that's the most important, I think it has to do with with that the importance of intensity and the importance of doing whatever you can to manage immigration or abandonment in the areas where you're working. Yeah. And then, you know, interesting to talk about that targeting. I've been a, a big fan of it for well, probably since 2008 or even earlier than that. And, you know, how do you determine what areas to target? And I think we've used a lot of metrics of shelter, surrender information or intake data going saying this is the area where I get the most surrenders from. Um, are we still using that as our way of determining the areas we should have sort of our most intense efforts or are there other factors at play? That's a good question. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm not able to characterize the range of different considerations that people factor into those decisions. Um, certainly any information like what you described would be relevant to identifying an initial target area. I think the thing that, that I've stressed and that we've stressed at ACCND um, is that all of those indicators are great ways to make your initial plan, but in order to fine tune that plan and to document whether it's working, you actually have to get out there in that population you're managing and, and collect some kind of data on what proportion of them are sterilized and how their numbers are tracking over time. So that's oftentimes, I think, the missing component in terms of metrics. But all of the ones that you described earlier are, are, are certainly part of the, the array of metrics that might inform good ways to, to choose an initial target area. I think another hot topic that we've had quite a bit over the last year, two years, maybe more than that, is uh, the veterinary shortage. You know, the, the capacity to access spay-neuter appointments, um, I think we all can be on the same page understanding that uh, a neuter takes a lot less time than a spay. So say you have those 500 appointments, say I said 400 of them would be neuters and 100 would be spays. Does that change the impact to a level or say I could do 700 with 500 of them being neuters, 200 spays versus 500 with, you know, splitting it up 50-50. Does that strategy help our impact in the community? 
John? If you have a fixed number of surgeries you're going to do, you'll have more population level impact if they're all females, as long as they're females. However, as you said, those are more expensive surgeries, so those use up your resources more quickly. And in addition, there are lots of other reasons why people might be reluctant to catch a male cat and turn it loose unfixed. So um, yes, if we're thinking strictly of are 700 female surgeries more effective than 350 of each gender in a population context? Yes, but there are lots of other thing, things that factor into the, the decision about what you're actually going to do. Right. I mean, one of the things when I was trying to first convince some organizations to do own spay neuter in their community was I said, just do $5 neuters for a month, you know, on one of their slower months, just so that they could get comfortable with having the, you know, community bringing in their cats. Um, neuters were easy time fillers and that kind of thing. So, you know, how can you slip in a few extra, you know, appointments in there in a way that's not feeling like they have to adjust their time frame. Um, Valerie, one thing I wanted to ask, you know, this project involved a large team of people. Could, could you share some of the folks that were involved in this project in addition to John? Yes, we really had a wonderfully diverse um, group. Dr. Julie Levy, who many in the community cat world know and love, um, she has been a long-term member of the team, um, as well as Margaret Slater, a um, veterinarian, and she's been with the ASPCA and very, very involved with community cat projects. Phil Miller, He's with the conservation planning specialist group, and he was really our expert with his background is in conservation issues. He does a lot of work looking at endangered species and minimum viable populations, and he used modeling software called Vortex um, to basically flip that on its head and um, look at reducing populations of free roaming cats. And Dr. Um, Steve Zawistowski, who is a long-time um, long member of the AS, um, scientific advisor for the ASPCA, he was also on our team. So we have a really, and uh, Felicia uh, Nutter with Tufts, um, who also has a background in free-roaming cats, as well as wildlife. Um, she was also on the team. So we had a really a wonderfully diverse group. When, um, when you had folks reading this research, what was the response of sort of the, I would not opposing side, but, you know, sort of the conservation side? How, how did they respond to this information? Um, I think one thing that, that characterized that whole team was that, that we recognized while we may have slightly different priority rankings of different things, we were all interested in knowing what the best possible analysis could tell us because we felt that that was valuable, whatever that, whatever that told us and constructed. So I, there was almost no philosophical, let's call it conflict among this group. And, you know, I, the, the more um, we share this kind of information with, with outside collaborators or interested parties, the more encouraged I am that there are, that there are in fact a lot of people out there who recognize that this is a complex issue, that there are some trade-offs but that if we, if we put our best efforts together and share our respective skill sets and concentrate on the goals that we do share, we can actually make 
some meaningful progress that satisfies both of those priority sets. So you just use the word meaningful progress. So can you clarify what that means? Is that because you know we're talking about counting, counting cats, measuring, doing it once gives us a snapshot, but we're aren't we going to have to do it again down the road? Well, meaningful progress can be envisioned lots of ways, but for the most part, I think people would agree that they aspire toward a world in which fewer cats live their lives outdoors, and specifically fewer of them are in a position where they have an impact, a significant impact on wildlife populations, either through their location or through their need or whatever combination of factors um, do that. Uh, in answer to the more specific question about measuring cats, uh, yes, you do not quote, solve this problem once and call it solved for all time. It's a dynamic system. It's a dynamic situation. Um, there can be ebbs and flows. So especially in high priority areas or areas that are important program areas for people, it's important to take these snapshots periodically so that we know where we stand and can report that um, with some rigor and with some assurance to other interested parties. It's kind of like, um, a, a good example of that is that, that, you know, probably almost everybody listening to this podcast comes from some sort of um, um, animal welfare NGO or perhaps, a, you know, a municipal organization. None of those organizations would think of looking at their financials in January of 2022, seeing that they're good and calling that good enough. You do that every month or every quarter or at least every year to check in because it's a dynamic situation. It's the same thing with the population. If you don't check in periodically in a, in a somewhat systematic way, you're not in a position to understand um, the, the, the current status quo or whatever changes might have occurred that you need to address somehow. With the holidays right around the corner curl up with a furry friend and a copy of the new book, How Snowball Stole Christmas by Kristen McKenna. The adorably funny brand new novel featuring one very opinionated, very beautiful matchmaking cat named Snowball. The story is as cute as the cover. It's the perfect stocking stuffer. Clever scallywag of a cute as a button cat residing in a small town, Victorian B&B and matchmaking on the down low, bringing two hearts together all wrapped up like a pretty Christmas bow on a creamy white cat named Snowball. There's no end to the way Snowball can drum up trouble to bring two people together who start out despising each other. This floof will stop at nothing to make the perfect holiday match for her resident humans, even if it means being a little more naughty than nice. Just in time for the holidays, How Snowball Stole Christmas from Kensington Books is available everywhere books are sold. It's a great read. Team Dubert is at it again, and now they have an amazing companion case management module that once again revolutionizes how you rescue animals. Dubert partnered with Dallas Pets Alive and the Spay-Neuter Network to build a powerful solution that allows you to manage cases of any kind. Whether owner surrender calls or emails, community cat tracking and reporting, Dubert is the only system that integrates two-way text messaging, automatic follow-ups, and even a rehoming solution that every organization can use. No more trying to manage 10 different technologies when everything is all in one place and tightly integrated. From fostering to transport, fundraising to e-commerce, supply and demand to case management, Dubert has everything you need to streamline your operations so you can focus on saving more animals. 
check out the new companion case management module at www.dubert.com CCM and get signed up today. Ever wanted to quickly connect, collaborate, or problem solve with others in the animal welfare field who are, you know, real people? Look no further than Maddie's Pet Forum. Maddie's Pet Forum brings people of animal welfare together with the common goal to keep more people and pets together. We share ideas, expertise, offer each other support, resources, and more. Visit forum.maddiespetforum.org slash cats. Maddie's Pet Forum, come for an answer, stay for the community. Valerie, were you going to add something? I was going to add something about just um, going going back to another another um, point that that I was talking about a, a few minutes ago. Um, I you know, neglected to mention, and I think this is part of, sort of an important part of the whole picture of this project that. Um, We've done this in phases. We've, we've, the project has been in phases. And, and at first, we just focused primarily on the population impacts of different interventions. Um, and then we, um, John was the lead author on, uh, and that first, first um, research was published a few years ago in Plus One. And then John um, was the lead author on a wonderful paper looking at preventive deaths or preventable deaths of kittens and adult cats. And then this most recent phase, we incorporated the costs of different of different interventions and what impact that has on um, you know basically the, the bottom line costs and the incremental costs for an organization or a municipality um, to manage cats in different ways. And I just wanted to to add, and because I I neglected to give credit to some very important people in that that project, certainly Joyce Briggs, um, president of ACCND, who sort of spearheaded, was behind this this whole project from its inception. And then this most recent phase, looking at the um, economic impacts, Aaron Anderson and um, Chris Slootmaker, who are economists with the USDA's um, National Wildlife Research Center. And they really helped us with looking at the numbers um, and the costs and incorporating those into. And it's another example of the interdisciplinary nature, but um, without, without those three people, we wouldn't be where we are at this point with this project. I want to circle back, John, to something that you said you talked about, you know, our listeners being involved with nonprofit organizations um, in our trapper certification workshops that we offer here at the Community Cats podcast on a monthly basis, about 70 percent of our attendees are folks that are not affiliated with any organizations. They're doing TNR all on their own, just helping a colony of cats in their backyards, just wanting to do the best that they can for those cats, you know, providing shelters, that kind of thing. What sort of advice would you give the individual as a way of helping the situation? My my first thing, my first you know strike would be get them all spayed and neutered. That's Mm -hmm. my you know your first my first goal. But you know, is there anything else we can do? Should we encourage our community members to keep their cats indoors, to adopt the kitties that they TNR out there? I mean, what can we do as one individual to help the situation? All of those things you mentioned are excellent examples of, of, of having positive impacts. And, and you know, one thing, you, you make a great point, and one thing that we do try to stress when we get um, 
when we get busy talking about population management is to recognize that, that it's a equally viable goal of TNR to do exactly what you described to help the cats in your neighborhood or the backyard by performing this, um, by performing TNR or by performing caretaking. So certainly if, if that's how somebody's operating to work with a, a small colony, you know, all of these things that we describe about larger level population impacts, they're not all immediately relevant. But if, if those things do interest somebody, you know, encouraging their local organization who does TNR at a larger scale to, to, um, to try to get a more, let's, let's call it coordinated, systematic, inclusive program off the ground is, is a very, very valuable thing to support. And there are more and more resources um, out there, some of which you can find at the ACCND website to give people a little bit of a head start on the more counting oriented elements of that. So um, if you're the bottom line, these tools and solutions are not one size fits all. You know, if you're doing TNR at a small scale, your needs for counting and quantification and all of those things are certainly very different than they are if your organization responsible for a whole county. Uh, and we're, we're very much aware of that. So, um, and we try in those resources that I described to help people distinguish between those two different situations so that they, um, that they can take the advice that's appropriate for, for their circumstances. One other situation that I've run into over the years, and I'm, I'm sure it's not just been me, has been, you know, where there's been housing sort of near a wildlife area. And there's recommendations that there are basically no outdoor cats, you know, near those protected areas. And I'm not a, I'm not against that idea at all. I think there's a level of education and understanding that has to go on in saying that maybe a response in this area might be different than a response in this area. And our um, our actions and our intensity use the word intensity a lot. Our intensity in these areas, buffer zones, or even within those areas is a bit different than we might be in a, in a different area. Um, is there any sort of an effort to sort of create a mindset or communication that's a little bit different for those areas? I mean, how can we explain it so that people don't get really anxious and aggravated? I thought for a long time, and this, this does come up in discussions at meetings or in some of the stuff that we've written, but you know, different places on the landscape are not the same. The potential impacts of cats are tremendously different, I would, I would argue, in some areas than in others. And um, for that reason, it's only logical to approach the situation in the way you've just described, to, to focus your efforts in places that are the most um, impactful and potentially the most controversial and where they can do the most good from a conservation perspective. That, that is very advantageous way to approach it. Unfortunately, I'm not aware of like a systematic um, effort to communicate those sorts of criteria around this whole enterprise. And hopefully in the coming years, we'll see more and more focus on that rather than these grand pronouncements about, you know, cats everywhere, cats nowhere, this sort of thing. We'll recognize that, that we have, that we live in a very diverse landscape with very diverse situations and very diverse potential solutions and a varying need for those solutions. And, and uh, to the extent we can encourage everybody to focus on the places that matter the most first, that's great. But we've got some work to do to kind of to kind of help create 
and and share that mindset more broadly. Valerie, do you have any uh, follow up thoughts with regards to this? I was just going to, you know, when you were talking just now, I was thinking about even as we were talking about how to craft this practical guidance document that we created, as well as a, a resource on counting cats, you know, we even faced some questions about you know, how do we talk about approach and methodology when we're talking about urban versus more rural areas. You know, I'm in I'm in Michigan where there, you know, I, I live in a more suburban area, but there's a lot of farmland not far from me. And there, there are different approaches that are needed just in, in terms of outreach and basic monitoring that's very different from a large urban area. Um, so that's something that we try to address um, as best as possible in our in the resources that we create. Uh, we created, but but certainly, as John said, it's 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 an ongoing process and something that needs to continue to be worked at. Yeah, and also I'm gonna also say that you know as you reduce your cat population, your you in a in an urban area, especially your rat population is going to change. And I know that the ACCD website has a section on on rats and population control. And I will say probably one of the first things that happens when I discuss any trap, neuter, and return program with a board of health, they're usually asking me about the rats. That's that's always in the conversation. And so another thing too, is when you're removing a, a layer of animals there, you're, there's going to be other animals coming into play. The balance changes. And I think we see that with other species of animals, you know, coming, going in how we respond in, in different ways. So um, you know, we were talking about thinking about the farms and the farmers. Well, farmers don't want to lose their barn cats, right? Their barn cats serve a purpose. Or how do you replace the job that those barn cats are doing? Or is there some other workaround not to do that job, but yet still be a viable farmer and do the things that they need to do? So there's there's a huge web of considerations in there. And I, I don't know if there are any, any resources or thought processes or anything that an individual can do from that standpoint, but it's a, it seems like it's a, just an overwhelming project at, at some point in time. And, and that's, a good, that's a good opportunity to, to, to recognize that all of these systems are complex and we never know exactly what's going to happen in a given place and a given time as a result of our efforts. We can use the information we have to make informed guesses, but that's part of the reason why this, this monitoring element that I've talked about, which can range from being very simple and basic to, to relatively more complex, but why it's so important because to simply assume that we know what's going to happen um, in a given place as a result of our efforts is, is, is hubris and it's unrealistic. So um, the, the, Counting cats in some form or another is a really important reality check. And it's also a really helpful tool, especially for programs that have, you know, more significant ambitions at the population level to be able to get some feedback, you know, as to what's working and what's not. We only have a few minutes left, but I know, John, you've been involved with the DC Cat Count. Um, and so that is a project. I believe it had like an app involved and you could, you know, count cats that way. And, and there's also another program called Cat Stats that Neighborhood Cats has put together to help communities with counting their community cats um, in, in a different way, different approaches, very different approaches. But, you know, is there anything 
from an individual standpoint, there's, there's not like, I know what there's bird counts, right? There's national bird count day. And I'm sorry, I'm not as well-versed in the bird world as I am in the, in the cat world, but you know, should we have global cat day become like a cat count day? Or is that not even anything on the radar? That's very, really interesting. You say that because that's sort of an aspiration of some of us in the ACC, C and D group. And in the DC cat count group is that, um, you know, it's all well and good to support and encourage these sort of um, cat count projects that are happening in their, their sort of isolated bubble. But ultimately, the most insight comes from, from sharing data and putting data together. And of course, there are, you know, uh, sensitivity concerns with cat counts and that sort of thing. But we think and hope that with some of the ongoing initiatives over time, there will be more and more opportunities for people who are, who are interested in the more quantitative aspect of their outdoor cat populations to have a go-to place where they can they can get their resources, where they can where they can get help analyzing the information they collect, where that information can be combined to provide insights that help everybody um, understand a little bit better what's effective and what's maybe not so effective. So what you describe is very much a long-term goal and project, but you know, sort of starting from scratch. So um, one step at a time, but, um, but yes, there's, there's a lot of precedent for this whole concept of open data and shared data to move enterprises or areas of inquiry forward in very, in very kind of efficient synergistic ways. And it's well worth thinking about with the cat world. Valerie, if folks are interested in finding out more about ACCND, how would they do that? We have a website, acc-d.org. Um, we encourage anybody um, who's interested to take a look. We have a lot of resources, both about non-surgical fertility control um, for dogs and cats on there. Um, we also, if you, if you check out our projects, um, we have a number of those underway, one of which is the population modeling project. And that also, if you Check that out. You can access all our resources at no cost. That includes the three peer-reviewed publications that are all open access and the two practical guidance documents, as well as actually a calculator that we recently released where you can put in some basic numbers and um, use it to calculate progress towards recommended, recommended sterilization targets. It's a handy, handy way to get some information to help you on your path to counting and monitoring. I love those calculators. Those are my favorites. So I'll make sure I get that checked right out. Anything else, uh, John, any last thoughts before we close out? Um, thank you for having us. We're, we're, we're eager to uh, answer questions or help where we can. Um, if anybody would like more information about uh, counting cats or, or the guidance that we've created, but as Val said, first check the stuff out on the website and that, that provides contact information. So, you know, um, our, our, our goal is to, is to help people do the things they love and the things they care about, perhaps a little bit more effectively, or at least, at least document what they, what they do better for the benefit of others. So um, keep up the good work, everybody. Any last thoughts, Val? I would I would echo what John said and, and also just add that if you are 
currently doing any putting in place any of the things that are recommended based on the modeling we did we'd really love to hear from you and talk to you and, and again um, the contact information is on our website excellent and i'd just like to chime in and really encourage folks that are listening to this podcast today that even if you aren't affiliated with a nonprofit organization that you are if you are out there on your own there's so much information that you can learn to help be impactful for the cats in your own community um, our guiding light is turning your passion for cats into action. That's for individuals, organizations, it's for anybody. So don't just say, oh, this is off with that group. They have to be the ones doing it. We hear people talking about we're making our programs outward facing programs. Well, programs should have already been in the community. We, you know, the community is the one that creates the solutions that has, you know, long standing, long term solutions to help elevate the status of cats, to be able to help all cats within the community. And this is part of that educational process that you can bring to your community members as well as helping the cats. So just wanna make sure that folks understand this is just not for an organization. This is a program for individuals and, and you can make a change that way. So John, Val, I wanna thank you both for joining us today, for being a guest on the show. And I know, and I'm sure we're gonna have you on the show again in the future. Thanks so much. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Wow.